I'm Alexander Lawrence Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts Podcast. Welcome to a second cup of afternoon tea with Alexander Lawrence Ames, answering questions about the word in the wilderness and some closing reflections on the book. In this, the final episode of Season 3 of Cloister Talk, I will answer a variety of questions I have received from readers about the word in the wilderness and offer a few reflections on the book project approximately one year following the volume's initial publication and amid the arrival of an affordable paperback version of the book. This podcast series explores topics covered in my new book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2020. There are many questions and ideas I address in the book that deserve further consideration, so each episode of Cloister Talk dives into one or more of those topics. If you'd like to learn more about anything discussed on the podcast, please read the book, which you can order from psupress.org or request from your favorite local bookseller or library. Those of you who listened to Season 2 of Cloister Talk know that for the last episode of that season, I fielded questions from readers of The Word in the Wilderness that I had received following the book's publication. That episode was so well-received that I have decided to close out this season of the podcast with an encore of this episode format. Having received more inquiries at various public events and via correspondence with readers, I will field a few more questions, and I would also like to offer some personal reflections on the book project as the paperback version of The Word in the Wilderness makes its debut. Season 3 of Cloister Talk brought with it all sorts of exciting new conversations and insights as we journeyed together to some of the various libraries, archives, and museums that supported research for the book around the Mid-Atlantic region, opening various pathways for thinking about Pennsylvania German books and manuscripts in context. We traveled from the gentle hills and picturesque scenes of the Winter Tour estate in the Brandywine River Valley to the bustling thoroughfares of Philadelphia to explore the collections of the Free Library, the German Society, and the Library Company. Our explorations led us from the ethereal shades of Efferta Cloister to the rich troves of the Schwenkfelder Library. We met leading professionals in the museum and library worlds who shared behind-the-scenes insights into their institutions and the work they do in the field of Pennsylvania German studies. The diversity of topics and approaches covered this season makes it valuable to take a few minutes to reflect on what it all means. As an avid tea drinker who often writes while sitting in my favorite wing-back chair with a hot cup of tea at my side, I invite you to make yourself a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and enjoy this discussion of the book. The first question I'd like to answer is one that I find to be a very interesting way to connect the topic of the word in the wilderness to modern times. 
The question is, what can the handwriting instruction practices of the Pennsylvania Germans in the 1700s and 1800s teach us about the changing place of cursive handwriting instruction in schools today? I find this to be a fascinating and important line of inquiry. Many listeners are probably aware that in an era of changing educational priorities and advancing information technologies that place computers, keyboards, and touchscreens at the center of the student experience, handwriting in general, and cursive handwriting in particular, have lost their erstwhile prominence in many school curricula. Much of the content of the Word in the Wilderness deals specifically with literacy instruction in sectarian Pennsylvania German schools, so I can offer some insights into this question from an historical perspective. First, one lesson of the Word in the Wilderness is that communication technologies have always responded to cultural needs and evolved across time, meaning that we should not necessarily be dismayed just because educational priorities shift with the passing of years. We see evolutions in how the Pennsylvania Germans educated their children in reading and writing based on changing political, social, and cultural circumstances. The history of information and technology suggest that such changes are part and parcel of the human communication experience. Second, despite what I just said, I am convinced of the importance of making rigorous instruction in handwriting and penmanship available, even though the cultural utility and resonance of these communication skills do continue to evolve in our own time. As an historian, I feel a special need to point out that we want students to be able to engage with our rich national heritage of handwritten documents, ranging from the state papers, including the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, to old family recipes that live in kitchen drawers across the country. The ability to read manuscripts and to write neatly should remain important skills to master in the early grades. The next question, which I recently fielded at a book talk, gets to the heart of the argument of the word in the wilderness. While I deal with it extensively in the book, it's a complicated question, so I'm happy to address it here. The question is, what constitutes a traditional approach to the art form I study, how does my approach differ, and what accounts for this divergence? Simply stated, the word in the wilderness attempts to place Pennsylvania German manuscript studies on a different path than they have been on for at least the past few generations. Whereas most scholars of the manuscripts have opted to interpret the documents as decorative artworks rather than literary and religious texts, I see the documents first and foremost as text-based artifacts of transatlantic religious history. This essentially means that whereas most commentators have placed greater emphasis on the pictorial and design qualities of the manuscripts, I use the religious texts included on many of them as the starting point for my analysis. I deal extensively with this question in the introduction to and conclusion of The Word in the Wilderness, so please read those sections carefully if you're interested in this question. In the conclusion of the book, you will find a section titled The Word in the Wilderness, A New Method for Pennsylvania German Manuscript Study, which offers a concise summary of my approach. Also, the preface to the book, titled The Quill is My Plow, offers a concise summation of my approach that you will find interesting.
Another very common question that I am asked about Pennsylvania German manuscript arts, and one that admittedly defies a straightforward answer, is how long did Frakturschrift calligraphy and manuscript making survive in Pennsylvania, and when did the art form begin to die off? What accounts for this evanescence of the art form? I explored this question in some detail in Chapter 5 of The Word in the Wilderness, in a chapter section titled Marching to Step and Time, The Decline of the Manuscript Tradition. I urge you to read that section of the book for a more detailed analysis than I can provide here, but suffice to say for now that while the arts of calligraphy and manuscript illumination lost their exalted status as a part of everyday educational and devotional practice in many Pennsylvania German communities in the middle of the 19th century, the tradition survived in altered form and still survives to this very day. In The Word in the Wilderness, I make the argument that changes in educational politics in Pennsylvania in the mid-1800s, which ended the era of sectarian-run schools in favor of public schools, combined with the industrialization of print publishing, fundamentally altered the social context and cultural gravitas of manuscript text production in Pennsylvania. Of course, many manuscripts themselves survived from earlier time periods. Frakturschrift letter forms maintained their cultural resonance, and manuscript artistic production did not disappear entirely. Yet the cultural context of the art form shifted in subtle yet foundational ways around this time. As the years wore on, the active Frakturschrift artistry in Pennsylvania took on a consciously antiquarian, heritage-driven quality, by which I mean that practitioners realized they were keeping alive a form of cultural expression associated with regional heritage. A good example of this is a 1939 manuscript created by John Durstein Souter, who lived from 1865 to 1942. You'll find it at wordandwilderness.com slash sources. Souter was of Mennonite background and had various occupations, but spent his later years practicing the manuscript illuminative arts, modeling his works on pieces made by earlier generations. The 1939 piece I mentioned, which was modeled on the work of well-known manuscript artist Samuel Gotchell, who lived from 1808 to 1898, is intentionally historical in its design and its purpose. Another wonderful artifact speaking to generational change and survival in the calligraphic arts is a book on Kaspar Schwenkfeld, owned by Magdalena Schultz-Kraus, which she presented to her granddaughter in 1888. A hand-drawn and calligraphed ownership inscription had been created in the volume years earlier for Magdalena in 1832 at the height of Frakturschrift manuscript culture in Pennsylvania. Magdalena then transferred ownership of the volume to her granddaughter with another hand-illustrated and calligraphed inscription in 1888. You'll find intriguing images of this book at wordandwilderness.com sources. At the close of this episode, and indeed at the close of Season 3 of Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts podcast, I wish to offer some final reflections on what I hope will be the next steps forward for scholarship on the history of Pennsylvania German Material Texts. 
Those of you who have already read The Word in the Wilderness know that one of the book's chief, though implicit, aims is to pave the way for new pathways in the field of Pennsylvania-German book and manuscript studies, with the hope that scholars will bring new questions, diverse theoretical approaches, new analytical methods, as well as new and unexpected source materials to bear on the topic. The book suggests that only with rigorous and systematic interpretive approaches derived from various scholarly disciplines can Pennsylvania German material texts truly find their place in the panoply of primary sources for the study of early American cultural life. In a sense, every page of The Word in the Wilderness and every episode of Cloister Talk speak to this goal more or less directly, and I hope inspire inquiry in promising new theoretical and methodological directions. I would like to posit a few specific scholarly disciplines that I feel hold the most potential both to contribute perspectives and approaches to the study of Pennsylvania German material texts and also to benefit from engaging with this particular set of primary sources. The word in the wilderness makes much of the vibrant field of book history, as discussed on pages 5 and 175 in the volume, but a few other fields and disciplines deserve mention here. First, I'd like to reiterate just how useful many Pennsylvania German illuminated manuscripts are to the field of history of education and literacy instruction. This point is emphasized in chapter 3 of the book, Worship Always the Scripture, as well as chapter 4, Incense Hill, and also in the conclusion. However, I think a much deeper and more wide-ranging study remains to be done of how the documents can inform our understanding of educational theory and practice. Closely related is the interdisciplinary study of the history of information, an important emergent field that explores the intersections of technology, social history, cultural history, communication studies, libraries, archives, and so much more. Pennsylvania German illuminated manuscripts can effectively be studied, interpreted, and presented as artifacts of communication technology. I also must note that the sources offer useful insights into the history of ethnicity, language, and cultural interaction in early America, especially when viewed through the lens of Atlantic world theory and global history in the early modern period, some of today's most important driving forces in history and the humanities generally. I try to gesture toward the utility of these approaches in Chapter 1 of The Word in the Wilderness, titled Heaven is My Fatherland, Manuscript Culture in an Age of Evangelical Piety. Studies of ethnicity and group identity in the context of nation and empire are complex, especially when examining time periods before the coalescence of the modern nation-state. The cultural expressions of the Pennsylvania Germans offer useful tools in thinking about identity and the state in the early modern period through the mid-19th century, as the modern United States began to take form. In his thought-provoking book, Ethnicity Without Groups, published in 2004, Rogers Brubacher offers reflections on cognitive understandings of identity, quote, Cognitive perspectives suggest treating racial, ethnic, and national groups not as substantial entities, but as collective cultural representations, as widely shared ways of seeing, thinking, parsing social experience, and interpreting the social world, end quote. 
He continues, quote, What cognitive perspectives suggest, in short, is that race, ethnicity, and nation are not entities in the world, but ways of seeing the world. They are ways of understanding and identifying oneself, making sense of one's problems and predicaments, identifying one's interests, and orienting one's action. They are ways of recognizing, identifying, and classifying other people, of construing sameness and difference, and of coding and making sense of their actions. They are templates for representing and organizing social knowledge, frames for articulating social comparisons and explanations, and filters that shape what is noticed or unnoticed, relevant or irrelevant, remembered or forgotten." End quote. I find this cognitive approach to group identity to be very useful when considering how best to make use of the rich material and textual heritage of the Pennsylvania Germans, which offers remarkable insights into how early German-speaking communities in America organized and interpreted the linguistic, spiritual, and aesthetic worlds in which they lived. I just outlined a few examples of the various scholarly disciplines that connect to the study of Pennsylvania German material texts, in addition to the more self-evident fields of early American religious history, intellectual history, the transatlantic history of German Protestantism, and early American material culture, all of which are dealt with in The Word in the Wilderness. Anyone interested in following up on these topics and approaches should page through the bibliography of The Word in the Wilderness to get a sense of the secondary sources that serve as the intellectual foundation of the book. I think you'll agree that the scholarly architecture of the work consists of both traditional and unexpected sources brought to bear on this topic. In the preface to the book, I write, and I quote, Whereas most previous studies of Fraktur have focused on their decorative folk art qualities, I interest myself in the spiritual texts on the documents and what the manuscripts reveal about lived religious experiences among their makers and readers in an age famed for its evangelical piety. As an intellectual and cultural historian, I engage with the Pennsylvania German spiritual artworks in order to illuminate the literary and religious lives of an understudied and frequently misunderstood group of early Americans, by linking their spiritual and textual experiences to those of other people from different places and periods. The purpose of this study is neither to celebrate the manuscript's folksy aesthetic charm, nor to decode symbolic meanings of illuminated manuscripts' rich pictorial imagery, two tasks that have occupied many previous commentators on the sources and produced admirable results. Rather, the purpose here is to place the document's written texts within the framework of Protestant belief systems of the time when the manuscripts were created, and consider how the documents, as visual artworks and material artifacts, fit within Pennsylvania Germans' popular piety and devotional practices. The book offers a proof of concept for the utility of interpreting the manuscripts as artifacts of American religious history. I hope the insights contained in the coming chapters equip you, the reader, with a set of interpretive tools and sufficient background knowledge about makers' and users' religious beliefs to appreciate the documents as spiritual objects." End quote. I believe that this act of interpretation I undertake in the book is the most important contribution the Word in the Wilderness makes to scholarship. 
My fondest wish is that my monograph encourages other scholars and readers like you to undertake similar work in the years ahead. Researching and writing the word in the wilderness has been a humbling and gratifying experience at every stage of the project's development, because I've known all along that my work is truly an effort to build on the scholarly achievements of so many others, both past and present. In chapter four of the book, I discuss the idea of paratexts, or the extra features that often accompany books and help organize and enhance their meaning, features like illustrations, title pages, and other added elements. Readers of The Word in the Wilderness will encounter an important paratextual feature of the book on the back of the dust jacket, a scene of a Pennsylvania German farmer plowing his field. This same image appears in the preface, lending context to the Quill is my plow quote found in several primary sources, which is explored in the book as a key theme to help us understand Pennsylvania German manuscript culture. This image also embodies how I think about academic scholarship. The laborious task of research, writing, and publishing are a bit like planting seeds that one hopes will sprout and bear fruit someday in terms of enhancing our collective understanding of important elements of the human experience. I sincerely hope that the book will make its own small contribution to the scholarly discourse and perhaps someday inspire others in the way I have found inspiration in the writings, ideas, and interpretations put forward by my own predecessors. Thank you for listening to this special final episode of Season 3 of Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts Podcast. I hope you have enjoyed hearing my thoughts and reflections on the word in the wilderness and exploring a few questions submitted by readers. I also hope that you have enjoyed the other episodes of this podcast, which I recorded to serve as a complement to the book and as an opportunity to carry on an extended conversation with the truly global community interested in religion, book history, and material texts that has discovered this podcast and the word in the wilderness. I have been honored to welcome readers and listeners from across the United States and around the world into the work I have been doing in Pennsylvania German Manuscript Studies. While the time has come to put down my quill and close this memorable chapter of my scholarly endeavors, I have so enjoyed the time we have spent together exploring the various themes and topics covered in my research. If you haven't yet done so, I hope you will consider purchasing and reading The Word in the Wilderness. To buy a copy of the book, just visit psupress.org, or you can also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit, peer-reviewed academic publishing, a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century. Please also check out the new Word in the Wilderness official study guide, available at wordinwilderness.com clubs, which can inform your reading of the book and point you in the direction of further resources to explore. Thank you for listening. Please keep in touch, and don't stop reading.